Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Last week, I told you a little bit about how genealogists have to sometimes take roundabout, circuitous routes to get to a conclusion. Among historians, it's the genealogists who don't bat an eye at taking a left-hand turn in New Jersey. Uh, Kudos to you if you've never been to Jersey and still know what I'm talking about. And I should point out that my conclusions in the last episode are actually controversial, since making the connection between William and Peter requires cold Vulcan logic, which often doesn't apply in history because human beings are often illogical. Many genealogists are waiting on that connection until we have a contemporary document explicitly stating that William was Peter's nephew. And to be fair, I am infamous for disregarding possible connections due to a lack of hard proof, so the fact that I find the evidence here compelling should speak volumes. But I would also understand if sticklier historians than I aren't ready to take that plunge. Today, however... I'm going to tell you a little bit more about William Blackmer's life, but mostly I'm going to talk about certain aspects of life in New England at that time, and I stress the words at that time, and in the process, hopefully a little bit about the history of English-slash-Native American relations that I'd be surprised to hear you had learned in school. You see, every now and then I hear people complain that the history being taught to kids is so Eurocentric and focuses so much on the colonists And we need to tell the stories of other peoples because their history just isn't being told. But that just hasn't been the case in a very long time. In fact, some might argue that it's been the other way around for a while now. And if you've been in school any time this millennium, I'd be very surprised if you had heard a version of history that wasn't an overly simplistic, natives good, Europeans bad. So in the interest of treating American Indians like actual human beings instead of assuming that they were always innocent angels, I'm going to try to balance that out a little bit if I can. I'll also tell you a little bit more about how historians in general, and genealogists in particular, have to sometimes put themselves through complex, discipline-blurring means to figure out what we figure out. William Blackmer arrived in Massachusetts sometime before the summer of 1666. Uh, And he was actually married that summer. We know he was there uh, because we have a marriage record uh, that summer of a marriage between him and a woman named Elizabeth Banks. Much like William, her background is the subject of much dispute among scholars. The details, mm, I'm not really going to cover them here because there's even less evidence for her. But just on a side note, the issue being debated today is whether Elizabeth was born Elizabeth Curtis or if her mother was Elizabeth Curtis. And this leads scholars to question whether Elizabeth, the wife of William, was actually the widow Banks at the time of her marriage to William. It is interesting to note, by the way, that the Blackmer property, as I will describe at the, towards the end of this podcast, that property later came into the possession of the Curtis family. Regardless, around the time of his marriage, William was granted property in the now 30-year-old town of Situate, near a bridge over the North River in an area which is now called Norwell. Situate was the northernmost of the towns of Plymouth Colony. The North Town Line had been settled in a controversial 1639 agreement with Massachusetts Bay, and distrust and animus between the Bay colonists and the town of Situate would last for decades. At this time, the center of English settlement was along the coast, with farms stretching out into the west. 
William's farm was further west than his Uncle Peter's homestead, which was downriver and on land generally considered fertile. The general trend is that the soil closer to the shore is rockier and not very suitable for farming. In fact, at one point, residents had considered packing up the whole town of Situate and moving it because the land by the shore was so unsuited to planting. But the soil does become better as one travels west. This might lead us to surmise that William's farm, west of the Columnar homestead and well inland, was more productive. However, the only real information we have about William's farm itself comes from a decade later when William was known to have owned a good house, not the best in town, but nearly as good, and a barn that held a, a number of different animals. William seems to have benefited from his uncle's knowledge of the region and had, in a matter of years, scratched out a reasonably successful living. On May 25th, 1667, Elizabeth gave birth to the first of the Blackmer children. Peter Blackmer, apparently named for William's uncle, is the subject of a biographical sketch I wrote a couple of years ago involving some good information about mills in the colonial era. And I know that sounds so exciting because maybe someday I'll talk about colonial mills. Yay! If you get it, you get it. Two and a half years later, another son, John, was born on 16th of December, 1669. A daughter named Phoebe followed on 12th of August, 1672, and finally along came William on 25th of February, 1675. I'm going to come back to those kids in just a little bit. Now, on to the more controversial stuff. It should be noted that by this time, the population of Situate, while being the second largest English town after Plymouth, was still exceedingly small. There was at this time no more than a handful of native families within the town's borders. The Wampanoag Indians had been reduced almost to the point of extinction by disease even before the arrival of the English, and I do want to take a little side trip here. There is no scholarly consensus in terms of actual figures, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 90-93% to 93 of the native population died four or five years before the pilgrims ever set foot in North America, with apparently even worse rates of survival near the coast in areas like Situate and better rates of survival among those natives living farther inland. Later plagues also devastated both the English and the native populations, but this plague in particular, the one that wiped out the population not just of New England natives but across the entire continent, had probably been making its way through the American Indian populations as a result of the Spanish contact more than a century before. This is crucially important, since a population in demographic decline does not result in a smaller version of the same society. A population in demographic decline collapses. I'm looking at you, near future China. This means that when the English set foot in New England, the American Indians they encountered were not the same societies that had existed before the Columbian Exchange. By the time of William's arrival, English settlers in Situate numbered somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100 men, uh, only 39 of whom were considered freemen by 1670, plus women and children. We don't know exactly how many. The disparity between the native population and the English in Situate was not common, of course, as in much of the rest of Massachusetts, the natives still heavily outnumbered the newcomers, uh, especially farther west. However, any English settler, even in Situate, at this time could expect frequent contact with the various tribes like the Wampanoags and others because of the growing commerce along the waterways of eastern Massachusetts. Understanding the nature of this contact with the various native tribes is key 
to understanding the rest of William's otherwise very short story. And it's where we get into the potentially controversial subject matter that I promised in the last episode. When Peter Collimore first arrived in Massachusetts, the relationship between the native tribes and the English was still reasonably good. Here's the thing. 21st century historians uh, and students of history in particular tend to walk out of high school social studies classes with this gross misbelief that the English arrived in 1620 and immediately began slaughtering the natives for sport. If the listener has this impression, perhaps this podcast is a good opportunity to separate out the long-term tragedy of the American Indians from the events of the first five decades. And I wish to stress this point. What we think of as the long-term tragedy was not representative of the first half century. In other words, we can talk about the tragedy of the American Indians. We can talk about the truly terrible way the later American government treated them, or the long-term impact of putting Native Americans on reservations. These are all great topics, and they can be mm, difficult for more traditionally-minded Americans. But, you see, we have several centuries of hindsight not available to the English in Peter Collimore's day when the balance of power and the danger of extinction ran very much in the opposite direction. And there's the key. When Peter and William were alive, the English were not the bad guys that the progressive academics like to target with their own particular brand of axe grinding. Oh, wait, 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 wait. But Paul, Paul, wait a second. Here's a list of terrible things Europeans did. Yes, I know, but I can provide an awful list of things Native Americans did too, or a, ter a terrible list of things that Europeans did to other Europeans, which, quite frankly, look a lot like things Native Americans did to other Native Americans. And this isn't whataboutism. It's me not buying into the political narrative. I think, for example, that it's actually relevant to note that from the English arrival in Massachusetts in 1620, to the beginning of King Philip's War 55 years later, English colonists fought just one two-year conflict with native tribes, and it was a war precipitated by the aggression and reckless behavior of one particular tribe and not the English. On the other hand, uh, the English got along with the natives as well or sometimes better than natives got along with each other. This situation had oh, let's say, soured by the time William arrived in the 1660s. A mutually beneficial alliance between the Wampanoags and the English colonies had persisted because of the goodwill and strong relationship between the English and the Wampanoag chief Massasoit. However, Massasoit died in 1661, and by the following year, his son, Metacomet, had become Sachem, which is a, an elected chief. The new sachem did not always share his father's friendly attitudes towards the English, and tensions waxed and waned in the succeeding years as the English population grew. It's important to understand these tensions cannot and should not be blamed on just one side. On the one hand, English population growth meant territorial growth, and while the English obtained proper title to the land under English law, there was some dispute over whether, early on, the Wampanoags understood that they were selling more than just the usage rights to the land. Certainly, by the time William arrived in New England, there was no longer any confusion about that. It would be silly, I want to make sure I'm very clear about this, it would be silly, and perhaps more than a little racist, 
to assume that Native Americans were incapable of understanding a concept like property rights after several generations of experience. The real problem here is not that they didn't understand what it meant to sell land. It was that they felt compelled to sell, perhaps because of a feeling of intimidation at the growing English numbers. On the other hand, violent raids on English homesteads were not uncommon even in peacetime, and the lack of a centralized authority among the natives meant that even though Metacomet did not authorize them, he also could not put a stop to them. From the English perspective, this distinction was meaningless. Violence was violence, even if Metacomet expected the newcomers to simply put up with it, which apparently he did. While the early English settlers were civilians almost to a man, those in charge by William's arrival included a number of military men with experience in the English Civil Wars or in the Pequot War, where the English who had seen warfare in Europe were shocked at the brutality of warfare in the New World, and they were not likely to respond to this violence as meekly as their predecessors. One of these raids, in fact, may have played an important role in our story. On 5th of July, 1669, William Blackmer was exempted from any further military service due to the loss of an eye. He had apparently been taking part in training with the militia and serving with them when needed, i.e. in defense of the community against these occasional native raids or as a deterrence against other colonies such as the French, Dutch, or even Massachusetts Bay. Side note, unity among different English colonies was very much a long way off. The exemption itself makes no mention of how he lost the eye, but later references to the event typically suggest that it was the result of defending Situate from a Native American raid. The date of the exemption may help future research identify the exact event in question. Uh, these were the kind of raids which ultimately led the colony to take back the guns that Englishmen had sold to the Wampanoags. Confiscating these guns was, however, a major insult which Metacomet uh, saw as disproportionate to the violence being done to the English. Hmm. In early 1675, one of Metacomet's translators, a native who had taken the name John Sassaman upon conversion to Christianity, came to Plymouth Colony's governor, Josiah Winslow, and warned him that Metacomet was planning a surprise attack against the English. Winslow and his advisors weighed their generally good relationship with the Wampanoags against the more recent tension, and they decided that Sassaman should not be taken too seriously— an indication that the English were not fully aware of how far that relationship had degraded. In fact, this trust in Metacomet is astonishing, given that this would not be the first or last attempted genocide against the English in the New World. And before I get demonetized for that, remember that the Pequots had attempted it in 1637, and the experience of the Jamestown colony in Virginia had been a stark example to New Englanders. In fact, later on, early in the next century, South Carolina would almost be wiped out when the Yamases decided that the best way to get out of their debt would be to murder their creditors. There were reasons English towns sat behind stockades. Winslow became alarmed when Sassaman was murdered by three Wampanoag men, apparently in retribution for his warning of the attack. At that point, any remaining English trust in the Wampanoags was now squandered, and Metacomet did not trust the English justice system, which convicted Sassaman's murderers, despite the fact that a full third of the jury were Wampanoag elders. Now, on this point, Metacomet's anger was well-placed, as the complaints against the lopsided and alien justice system of the English were widespread and, quite frankly, usually fell on deaf ears. 
When the murderers were hanged for the crime, the Wampanoags acted on their planned assault and attacked the town of Swansea on the 20th of June, 1675. The war very quickly drew in the surrounding tribes, and the ultimate English victory, nearly a Pyrrhic victory, was by no means a foregone conclusion. Numerous English settlements were burned to the ground, and per capita, the war was the deadliest in American history. When the natives were at the height of their power in the spring of 1676, some of them turned their attention to the area around Situate, specifically west of the main town in the area now known as Norwell. Much of the focus of the war at this point was on Rhode Island, where Peter Collimore also owned land, and many of the Situate men enlisted in the militia had gone there to bolster the English defenses. Some had remained in town, where they fortified several blockhouses along the general line of the North River as a precaution. Now, because of his exemption from service, William was in neither group, and he remained at home with his family. This is especially important to understand given the geography of the immediate area, which is described in just a moment. On the 21st of April, 1676, a group of native warriors passed through the area, burning homes and barns and mills as they went. There actually seems to be two different raids conflated in the records, one in April and another a month later, but the records clearly show that William was involved in the earlier incident. When the alarm was sounded, he armed himself and went to draw the natives away from the house. Elizabeth took the children, the youngest of whom, William, was just over a year old, and fled south. It is a good bet that at the very least they had time to take some of the more valuable possessions like the family's Bible, uh, because later when the house was burned, things like the Bible survived. Uh, but they probably didn't take much more. The nearest safe place was a blockhouse west of Union Bridge on the north bank of the river as that river turned sharply to the east, which was somewhere between 13 to 1,500 feet away. According to the story, Elizabeth and her children ran towards this fortification as William held off the attackers. As they fled, William was killed on his own land. Elizabeth and the children, with the enemy at their heels, made it to the blockhouse just in time for it to come under siege and for them to see that their house was on fire. The siege did not last long. Uh, what caused the natives to break off the attack, whether it was a, a stout defense or just a desire to find a softer target, that's not relayed to us. But William's wife and children survived the night. The story of William's death is generally accepted as I've just told it. Numerous source materials, all secondary sources, agree that William fended off the attack while Elizabeth, children in tow, ran the 13 to 1,500 feet south to the blockhouse, and that after William was killed, the raiders burned the house down. There are very few things which make a story as satisfying as a hero who valiantly sacrifices himself in order to save his loved ones, and at no point is there anything found in the source materials which might diminish the fact of William's bravery. Before wrapping up, though, I also said that I would talk a little bit about how sometimes historians have to go through hoops to draw conclusions. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Property records showing the granting of land to William Blackmer have not been located as part of this research, but this is not unusual for the mid-17th century. However, the compelling nature of his story and the story's close intertwining with real honest-to-goodness history is such that finding the location of his death seemed to me to be a worthwhile pursuit, and how this information was obtained may be of interest. While travelogging, by the way, travelogging, it's a genealogical slang term for the detailed description of how records are found 
as compared to a detailed description of the information from those records. While travel logging is discouraged by many genealogists and genealogy course instructors, there is something to be said for an occasional diversion to learn how genealogists sometimes have to form conclusions from evidence which we wish was more concrete. A description of how William Blackmer's home was located may give listeners some insight into how research sometimes unfolds using, let's say, unorthodox sources. Readers, uh, listeners rather, uninterested in this aspect of genealogy should skip ahead, or don't. This is a podcast, not a court order. There are numerous iterations of the story of William's death, some more detailed than others. It is agreed that William died while fending off an Indian raid long enough for his family to flee to a nearby blockhouse, but where in situate this occurred was never made clear by the source materials. To be fair, these source materials are somewhat parochial and probably assumed that any reader was a local and therefore familiar with the area. Several versions of the story indicate that William's house was on the property much later occupied by Captain Elijah Curtis, who died around 1829, the exact site being, quote, a few rods east of the Curtis home. Samuel Dean's History of Situate records that the Blackmer home stood where stands the house of the late Captain Elijah Curtis, 40 rods west of the lane that leads to Union Bridge and on the north side of the street. This sounds exceedingly simple. Find the home of Elijah Curtis and we'll have our answer. Reviewing property records has been a major part of the research conducted on, on this family and in many of the other reports written for notes on history over the years. However, it turns out that Captain Curtis was a wealthy man, and the local deed index contains a great many references to the name, and not just our own Elijah Curtis, uh, but relatives with the same name as well. This would require a review not just of dozens of deeds with the Curtis name, but then tracking each of these properties back in time a century and a half, alternating between the grantor and grantee indexes until someone from the Blackmer family was found. So, faced with a lengthy deed search, which promised a great deal of effort with little promise of success, it was decided to instead search for the blockhouse, since the Curtis home should be reasonably close. A simple Google search for blockhouse in situate Massachusetts returned first and foremost Zillow.com listings for homes on a street called Blockhouse Lane. And this was initially very, very disappointing, until the realization came that the street might rather obviously be named after the structure in question. Further searching revealed a blockhouse yard at the end of the street. It was a shipyard built in the early 1700s on the site of a former blockhouse. This placed the blockhouse at a bend in the North River near present-day Norwell, on a cursory glance of a map that showed that not far from the location of the blockhouse was a bridge over that river. The blockhouse was supposed to be near Union Bridge, and north of the bridge, the street is aptly called Bridge Street, but the name changes to Union Street on the south side of the river. Union Street runs many miles to the south, much too far for that end of the road to be near the Curtis House. The north end, however, is very near the area of the blockhouse. Knowing that the home was located some 40 rods west of this juncture, Google Earth Pro was used to measure the distance from the end of Bridge Street to the west 660 feet, because, as we all know from our daily casual conversation, one rod equals 16.5 feet, so 16.5 times 40 gives us 660 feet. There is a home at about this distance from Bridge Street. The house, it's on the north side of the street, is uh, visible from, uh, rather, on Google Street View, and seems to be a, a very pretty, very well-maintained colonial-era house. While it was not for sale at the time of the research, 
A Zillow description from a previous listing describes it as the, quote, historic May Elms Farm. Another Google search for this term led to a 2008 article from Wicked Local Moshfield, a website whose name should presumably be pronounced in a heavy Boston accent, which provided a brief history of the house and identified the property as that owned by William Blackmer and the house itself as that built by Captain Curtis, though a further review of local property records and probate files suggests the house predated the captain's ownership. Using Google Maps satellite and street view imagery, we can deduce based on the prior measurements that the Blackmer home was located between the present house and a fenced-in pasture or field, easily seen on street view and identified on the satellite image as a, a rectangular, light beige or tan-colored space east of the house. From the Curtis house, the Black house would be somewhere between 13 to 1,500 feet to the south-southwest, uh, the variance between 13 and 1,500 stemming from the fact that we don't have a more precise location of the fortification. This means that the distance traversed by Elizabeth and her children, whether on foot or by horse, was roughly four and a half football fields. For those who find the modern American use of football fields as a unit of measurement strange, perhaps other even stranger units of measurements can be used, this is roughly the length of one and a half World War II aircraft carriers, the length of a longish par four fairway, or about as long as the Empire State Building is high. In any event, rushing that distance with her children while evading marauding Indians and making it to safety was quite a Herculean task, and Elizabeth deserves accolades as perhaps the most provably athletic of my own foremothers. That's it for today. I said in the last episode that William's story was going to be followed by that of another Blackmer, Ephraim, uh, and his involvement in the taking of Fort Ticonderoga. That's my plan for next time, though I might sneak in another Revolutionary War topic first. I simply haven't decided which one would flow better, but we'll find out now, won't we? Remember to subscribe if you haven't already done so, and be sure to use good old peer pressure to get your friends to do the same. Because if you jump off that cliff, shouldn't your friends jump too? I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.